Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. People can change anything they want to. And that means everything in the world. Show me any country and there'll be people in it. It's time to take the humanity back into the center of the ring and follow that for a time. You know, think on that. Without people, you're nothing. Without people, you're nothing. Stoke the fire. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition, another installment, another episode of Stoke the Fire. As always, we are your hosts from the UK and the US of A, Matt Stocks, here in Birmingham, the second city. And Jesse Leach up in Woodstock, New York. How are you, dude? Yeah, pretty good, man. You? I'm very well. I've just caught a glimpse of myself in the camera, and I feel like I look like one of the older brother, like bully type figures in an 80s movie (laughs) (laughs) with this mustache and buzz cut. (laughs) Yeah, is it? And speaking of which, is that Steve on your shirt there? <laughs> yeah, there? dude. Good eye. That is indeed Steve with <laughs> a firework coming out of his ass. Hell, dude, looks amazing. As always, apologies for the audio only listeners. This is why you should check us on YouTube. And yeah. check this out, dude. If you think the Steve O shirt's good. Oh, look at that. Leopard yeah. print short shorts, swim shorts for the You are just weather. ready to party right now, dude. I couldn't be more 80s. I just need like a Budweiser. Let's go. Let's party. Um yeah. How are you? You sound a little hoarse, if you don't mind me saying. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I basically uh, spent a couple days partying with friends and family, and um, my allergies caught up to me. My immune system is like steel. I haven't had anything in, in like three years, but uh, my allergies finally ca- caught up to me, so I'm a little sniffly today. So I'll do my best to sort of uh, mute the mic when I got to sneeze or, or, or hack or whatever, but uh, I'm on the other side of it. A couple days ago, I, wasn't, I was definitely... Uh, tissues everywhere and all that stuff i don't miss it i really like being healthy so i'm gonna go back to being healthy well this is what happens when you're in big groups it's like a petri dish for germs isn't it corona aside just yeah, yeah. in general and then you throw yeah some some late nights and alcohol in the mix and it'll get you yeah you sound like me after the world cup so it's nice that the shoe's on the other foot this week <laughs> i got this now. <laughs> so um, why didn't you tell everybody about our amazing guest this week and then we will bring him on the show yeah, so this guy, I met him um, doing a segment. Uh, we, Adam and I were doing promotion for, it's hard, to, I think it was Killswitch. Yeah, Killswitch. And uh, we met this guy and we basically had to challenge him um, as a cook, like a cook-off. It was him against us, which was just so not fair because he's such a great chef. And then since that uh, moment, I've just became really good friends with him. He's a great dude and he's also involved in mental health awareness. So we've worked together. Uh, we'd become, it was very, very quick friendship um, just based off of food, music, and then, you know, our sort of mutual passion for, for you know, mental health awareness. So yeah, I've kept in touch with him through the years. He's doing great. He's, he's worked for some amazing people. He's, his story is pretty cool, man. I would, I just thought he would be a great guest to tell his story and come full circle. Uh, he's definitely sort of, uh, if I could say, like kind of an American dream. He really worked his butt off to, to see his success. So uh, without further ado, uh, Chef Brian Sao. 
Come on down, brother. My goodness, what an intro. Thank you for that, Jesse. Yeah, my man. <laughs> Dude, what camera the... are you using? You look like you're on a movie set. Uh, thank you. Uh, so first off, before I tell you what camera I'm using, I knew nothing about cameras maybe seven months ago. So the, all my camera gear are relatively recent uh, recent acquisitions. But this camera I'm using right now, this is called a ZV-1, a Sony ZV-1. Sony, you better hit me up. And, uh, cause you well, you better hit us up too. It looks amazing. Let's take two. <laughs> uh, uh, this is a Sony ZV-1. It's a camera that's actually specifically uh, tailored to content creators. So the way the camera is designed is just very intuitive. And um, I got one of these, started using it for my YouTube show. And then after filming one episode, it, the footage was so amazing. It was so easy to use. I ended up getting two more. And how much does one of them set you back just in case Sony doesn't hook us up? <laughs> uh, so each one, uh, brand new, goes for like eight ninety nine. dollars um, $8.99. You... Yeah, yeah. I got it at I got it at the local pharmacy. <laughs> <laughs> like nine hundred bucks. Nine hundred bucks. You know, they have like packages for a thousand bucks that basically gives you everything you could possibly need with the camera set. But this camera's been out for over a year now, I believe. I think over a year now, and I'm starting to see them used for like six hundred bucks, as low as five fifty. Um, I bought all mine brand new, and I wish I was more patient. But I'm not. So uh, actually, no. One of them I got was around like six fifty. So you can definitely get a get a great deal for them. And uh, the new model just came out like three days ago. So I'm pretty sure these are going to go down again slightly. All right. Well, gas. If Sony doesn't hook us up, maybe you guys can. Ralph, what do you reckon? Yeah. Hey, make us look like we we sound. You know, let's bring it to the top tier. So, Brian, first of all, it's great to meet you, dude. Um, it's really nice to connect. And obviously, we've kind of been linked up through Instagram for a little while. And, and I've been looking forward to this chat. And, and Jesse, you know, obviously spoke very highly of you then and indeed has done behind closed doors um, for a while as well. Um, I guess we should begin. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Uh uh, first off, nice to finally meet you in, in the uh, video, I guess. <laughs> I think this is as close to the flesh as we're going to get. Uh, for for now, yeah. Um, so uh, to answer your question, I'm born and raised in New York City. I, you know, just a lifelong New Yorker. Uh, my father immigrated from Taiwan. My mother immigrated from Korea. They both found their way to New York. That's where they had me. I lived here until I was about 13 years old. Uh, maybe 14. I don't remember any uh, really remember now. But at around that age, uh, my parents shipped me off to um, international school in Beijing, China. So I lived in Beijing, China for about six years, like just under six years um, for my like most formative teenage years. So I always say I kind of grew up in at both places. Um, and then I came back to the States when I was like turning 21 and have been here since. So what's what? Why? China, what happened there? Why? Why did you? Why did you get shipped off to China? What did you do? <laughs> so, growing up, I was never a good student. I was not the prototypical, like stereotypical Asian kid. You know, doing well in school, listening to his parents, and had aspirations of being a doctor, a lawyer, things like that. Um, I wasn't a particularly bad kid. It's not like I was dealing drugs or anything like that, or or getting into like. Um, 
bad trouble. I definitely did my fair share of stupid things, but I think they kind of saw that I wasn't really going anywhere um, and really didn't have any motivation. I also didn't speak my mother tongue, neither of them, because my dad's Chinese and my mom's Korean and they spoke English in the house. So ironically, I grew up speaking very broken English. <laughs> uh, um, and they just wanted me to kind of see something outside of, you know, Queens, New York. So um, there was an exchange student living in our home at the time who was from Beijing, China. And while his parents were visiting, they're like, oh, why don't we send Brian to Beijing for a year? Like, let's get him out of the country. And so it was his fault. It was the exchange student. You've got yeah. to blame him. Um, they sent me there. I went to an international school. And despite it being really miserable that first year, because it was such a culture shock, I just felt very drawn to get out of New York because while I wasn't particularly enjoying myself, um, I felt like there was more to learn and more to do. And I ended up staying there for six years. So at what age could you have returned had you wanted to? Uh, I could have returned after that first year if I All right. Um, but as I mentioned, I wasn't a very good student. Um, so I actually flunked my first year in, in China. Um, I basically checked out when I was in school because I was so miserable. And then that's when I really dove into playing guitar. That's basically all I did on my free time when I was outside of school. So I was just drawing a lot in my, in my notebook as the, as I was in school. And then when I'd go home, I'd just, um, play guitar all, you know, until I fell asleep. Um, but again, I just kind of was fascinated by being there and by meeting all these people from different parts of the world and, um, just seeing this completely different culture from what uh, I was used to. Um, and after that first year was over and I flunked, I kind of felt like, man, this was, <laughs> this was a missed opportunity in many ways. So I chose to stay another year. Um, I ended up, you know, being an A student. Um, and then after that second year, I just kind of felt the need to stay a little longer. And before I knew it, again, six years had passed. Wow. That's that's crazy, man, to me. So when you first initially went, was that was your choice or were you kind of like forced? How did that work? Uh, it was it was an idea that was presented to me. And honestly, <laughs> Honestly, the idea of getting to see the Great Wall was like yeah. the, only, the only thing I needed to sell me to go. You know, I didn't have to pay for it with my own money. You know, like fortunately, I grew up, um, you know, in a upper middle class home. So my dad was able to afford for me to uh, uh, go to school internationally and see this other side of the world and get to know a little bit about that part of my culture and my background. Um, and yeah, it was, it was completely voluntary because I just wanted that opportunity wow. to do something outside. And it was very scary. I remember landing and just being like, oh, I am, I am definitely not in fucking New York anymore. Like, what is this place? It was just, it was just, it was a major, major culture shock. And um, in hindsight, it was exactly what I needed at that time is that jolt, you know, that fire lit under my ass, even though I didn't do good in school. It just, again, there was something about being outside of my comfort zone, which that would actually become a theme until this very day of just not being in my comfort zone. And I think that 
first day getting out of the airplane in Beijing, China was the catalyst to that. Wow. Why do you think that is that you've never found that zone? Uh, I think life was easy uh, when I was living in Queens. I, I had mentioned that I grew up in a in an upper middle class family. My my parents came to this country with zero, probably less than zero. I mean, like six. My my dad in particular, you know, six kids, uh, a crippled father who had just suffered from a stroke, and um, a you know my grandmother who was working in the sweatshops of Chinatown when. Um, Chinatown had, uh, or New York, I should say, still had a lot of textile, um, textile factories. He grew up with less, less than nothing, and he worked his way up to, um, uh, to be, to do very well for himself. And his goal was to never allow his family to have anything less than what they, you know, what they would ever need. So, um, we always had a nice house to live in. My mom always drove um, like the latest model, top tier Mercedes. My dad always wore a gold Rolex. Like there was a lot of this material, like in addition to having all the essentials we could ever need, uh, there was also an emphasis on having a little bit more excess because he, he worked for it and he damn right deserved those things, especially, you know, if he could afford it. But for me growing up, um, I think I just had it too easy and I didn't really see the need to try harder because I was given everything for the most part. Right. Um, and it's funny because, uh, I, I felt very lost and I think that's why the idea of leaving the country in its entirety, uh, seems so appealing because it's like, Oh, maybe I can find that thing that I don't know uh, what I'm looking for is somewhere else, mm. uh, which is why I jumped at that opportunity. So you mentioned the the guitar. And so I'm curious how your journey got into food, but it seems like the guitar came first, correct me if I'm wrong. So how did you find music? Where, where did music enter your life to the point where you got a guitar and you decided that you wanted to start doing this? Because that became a huge part of your life from that point on, correct? Definitely. So I've been playing guitar longer than I've been cooking. Actually, no, that's not true. I mean, I've been cooking since I was five years old. We, we'll get into that later, but um, not by choice. <laughs> um, so to answer your question about the guitar, though, I remember being like 11, 12, and I met my uh, half brother for the first time on my father's side, who I'm very close with. Uh, his name's Kevin Sow. We're very close. I love him to death. Uh, we don't even call each other half brothers. We're just we're just brothers, you know, straight up. But it was my first time meeting him, and I up to that point I had grown up as a single child, and I remember that being very lonely as well. Um, I mentioned uh, just a few sentences ago that I had been cooking on, you know, uh, on my I had been cooking since I was five years old, not by choice. It's because my parents were never home. My dad was always working. And my mom, uh, you know, in the early days of my youth was a little uh, uh, absent from the home, I should say. Uh, uh, she's fully involved in my life and my daughter's life now. She's a wonderful human being. But, you know, when I was much younger, there was I was definitely left home alone a lot. When you uh, were five? I was five years old. Yeah. Wow. There was always a nanny or a babysitter, but you know there was a, there was always a lapse of time where I'd be home alone for a couple hours, right? You were like Macaulay Culkin all the time. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so for the guitar, yeah, again, going back to my, uh, half brother, when I met him for the, f I always wanted a, a sibling, an older sibling. Cause when I would go to school, uh, I'd get picked on a lot. I, I was just, you know, I was just a friendly, happy kid, but usually friendly, happy kids are also easy targets for bullies. So my entire elementary school life, I just remember getting bullied a lot and I, I could never retaliate because often these bullies had older brothers or older sisters who would kick my ass if, if I re retaliated. So it was always like a dream of mine to have an older sibling and I would make up older siblings and tell people about them, uh, hopefully as deterrents. And then eventually I was told, oh, you, you really do have an older sibling. It was this dream come true. Um, and I met my older brother and, uh, I just was, uh, fascinated by him and, and, uh, I don't, I don't, I, I can't come up with the words right now, but I was just so happy to have this older sibling that I feel like could be a protector, but also could be someone I looked up to. And he grew up in the, my older brother, he's not that much older than me. I would only say four or five years older than me. And he grew up in the, um, the grunge era alternative rock era how and old are you brian i'm uh i'll be 37 this october um so my brothers i think uh, like i mentioned he's not that much older than me um I, I think even i think only like three years older than me now that i think about it but anyway um he was super into like green day for example was his favorite band at the time and he definitely dressed the part a little bit and um, he started telling me, I started asking him, you know, what does he like? What does he like to do? And he, I remember he mentioned baseball and he like, he plays bass guitar. So right away I was like, okay, I want to, I want to play baseball and I want to play an instrument too. And that's kind of how it started. And he, my brother gave me um, his, uh, a bass guitar, which I have to this day. It hangs in my studio wall on my studio wall. And that's, that was my introduction to the instrument and it wouldn't be until a couple years later um during the new metal boom mm -hmm. that we would actually seek out lessons to learn how to play the instrument but that's where it all started uh, the really long answer just uh, jesse and matt to, to to that question of how i found my way to the guitar so this is when you're back in new york mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah still in new york at this point i hadn't left for china yet okay so when you get there as a, you know, when you're a teenager, right? I mean, most people, most teenage boys got two things on the brain. One's girls um, or boys, perhaps. And then the other is, you know, music. And you're discovering, as you say, punk rock, grunge, metal, these things. Um, what's in China? Is there like music of that sort there that's available? Are there other rockers and punkers and metalheads there? Do you find your tribe there? Um, or, or do you lose touch with you know, that part of your personality whilst you're over there and then reconnect when you come back? How does that pan out? Right. Uh, I'm really glad you asked this question because it's, I think the way I found my tribe differs very greatly from a lot of people who got to um, grow up their teenage years in the West, you know, whether it's in the UK or in the States. Um, and Jesse, Killswitch Engage has something to do with it. But um before before we even get there, uh, so I, I started I started learning how to play the guitar when I was still in the states, and I think maybe I was only five six months into it when I went to mainland China to go to school. Um, and 
right before I left to go to mainland China, I think it was like my first year of high school. I, again, I, like I'm, it's a little cloudy. The memories are a little cloudy now, but um, I didn't really find my tribe yet in the States. Like I had my friends I grew up with. I was starting to meet new people because I just uh, gone to high school and was making new friends. But and I, I was hanging out with some of the metal kids and rock kids and stuff like that. But I didn't really find my tribe of friends. My my friends at that point was still my middle school and elementary school buddies, and they were not into rock and metal or anything like that at all. They were like more video games and sports wrestling stuff like that uh, so when i went to china i almost went there insulated in some way like in my own interests because yes my brother introduced me to these bands i was big into grunge i was big into new metal but i i that's all i left the states with and i got planted into china and when i got to china um, i went to this international school but it was predominantly south korean kids and they were not into rock and metal um, and I just kind of had my CD books when people had CD books at that time. And I, I just loved this aggressive music with, you know, guitars, bass and drums and screaming vocals. And I just listened to those records over and over again. And I did get introduced to stuff I think I would have would not have ever listened to if it were not for me going to China, like things like Mr. Big or X Japan. You know, both of these bands were huge in Japan. Yeah, I've interviewed Yoshiki. He's a real character, like yeah. one of the most unique and unusual people I've ever had the pleasure of talking to. And yeah, that band's story, if anybody hasn't seen and wants to check out more about them, the documentary on them, that story is just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, great, great band, you know, unbelievable visuals, but also amazing songwriting, just epicness. I had never heard that kind of epicness before. But Anyway, I first got to China, I was just kind of insular. And the only way, and I didn't have friends in my immediate vicinity who I could find new music from until maybe a year later when I transferred to a different class. And then there were some more Western, you know, kids from the Western world there, you know, whether it was Europe or the States. And that's when I started getting introduced to uh, the more modern music. I remember this one kid came in from Florida. And he brought like System of a Down with him, like the newer System of a Down stuff. He brought Chimera stuff. He brought Kill Switch stuff. He brought Avenged Sevenfold stuff. Like this was the new shit at the time. And uh, I just remember my mind being fucking blown away because up to that point, I was listening to my same, you know, 20, 30 grunge alternative and, you know, um, new metal records. And then as I... Uh, stayed in China longer and I got to know the area better, something really interesting happened was in China, there's a huge market for bootleg video and music products. I mean, basically you can't find anything that's authentic over there. Everything's <laughs> looks ex like the way they bootleg, it just looks exact, almost identical to the real thing. And um, for their metal selection, they had some, really obscure shit because for the metal stuff in specific they ended up getting a lot of like seconds or b stock from the west that basically got shelved um so for example like i found um i found like 
Cannibal Corpse's live Cannibal Records, but it had like the CD cover had a crack in it or something, you know, so I was able to buy the authentic version in China. I remember getting some Vader records and Demo Bogir and and stuff like that in China, you know, in in this bootleg um, bootleg uh, music store. And it just this is all pre-internet as well, right? Like for the large part. I mean, I was still using dial-up at that point. You know, there I, I lived through. You know, I was I was you know old enough to remember distinctly remember the whole Napster Napster era. Oh, my New York accent almost came. I almost said Napster. <laughs> uh, so, um, I, I remember the Napster era and stuff like that. But when I was living in China, I only had a dial-up, and it just wasn't that easy. And you had to pay by the minute for dial-up in China, so I wasn't able to um, really get new music that way i got some stuff but not much but uh yeah all the new stuff i would get exposed to would be either i come back to the states on my summer vacation and then i would ask friends like what's the newest shit or i would watch mtv because at that time mtv was still playing some metal and rock uh or it would be someone coming from the west bringing whatever they had over in their cd wallet and i would burn over now burning CDs, man. What a different, what a different era of time. Dial-up connections. I can still hear that that noise when it connects. Oh my god! So you're there in China. You're discovering music. You get back to the states. How old are you now? So this is high school age, correct? You you go through high school in China. You come home. What what? How old were you when you got back to to New York? I got back. I was like twenty, going on twenty one. So technically, I would have been out of high school. But uh, after I finished high school, I did one year of college in um, in China at the Music Conservatory, which is funny because I don't know how to read music. I, I just kind of was like, oh, I'm at the Music Conservatory, but uh, I'm taking their language course. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I did one year there and I just dropped out and kind of focused on my band over there. That's a whole other story. But um, I had a band and mainland china and that was like that was my focus for quite some time and at some point i was just like oh the ccp is never going to allow a, a metal band um thrive so uh, i kind of saw the writing on the wall i also had some substance issues develop um again that's a whole nother story but uh about 20 years old i just kind of saw the writing on the wall and i, I realized that my time at China had run its course. And if I decided to stay in China, I would just continue to dive further into substances and, and my indulgences um, and end up dead. Because again, I mentioned my, you know, my father, you know, uh, does did very well for himself at that time, especially. And uh, I was just this like rich spoil kid living off of daddy's money. And at that time, the conversion rate was like nine to one, eight to one, just to give you like some perspective. One Chinese yuan will buy you a bottle of water, just like one US dollar will buy you a bottle of water here, right? So with the one US dollar, I could buy nine bottles of water. You know, my my dad's money went a lot farther in, in China and I was just getting comfortable again. I dived into all these indulgences and I, I knew, even though I was having the time of my life, I knew that's no way to live and that's not going to sustain itself, um, which is why I decided to leave mainland China, despite having this, you know, cool band and girlfriends and drugs and all this stuff, anything I could basically want. 
um, I just decided to, it, it was time to move on. And I came back, you know, no education, no skills, no nothing. And uh, came back on my own accord when I was like 20 years old and uh, was going to go to college, decided to go back to school uh, at John Jay School of Criminal Justice. And I was thinking of becoming a cop or something like that. Um, I can't I see you as a cop, dude. I can't see that at all. I can't see that either. And I don't know what got into my mind, but it just, I don't know. It seemed righteous, I guess. Yeah. You know, I thought I, I was making myself better by pursuing something like that, even though I had zero interest in it. But I remember I had to sign up for, I had to submit some paperwork and I walked through the doorway. And I just remember the, the moment I walked through the doorway, I was like, fuck this, you know, like I, what the hell am I doing here? I just literally turned around, never went into the, the office to submit my paperwork. I was just like, yeah, I, I have no interest in this. So I called up my dad and I asked him, uh, do you have any friends that are hiring? Because uh, at that point, I had been working for my dad uh, since I was 13 years old, you know, stocking shelves, mopping floors and cleaning bathrooms. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned that I was like a spoiled rich kid, but also I worked for my money, you know, um, since I was 13 years old on the weekends, other kids would get to go out and play with, the, you know, go play at, at the park or ride bikes. But I had to work at my dad's gas station, you know, a 13 year old kid working at a gas station, taking cash and, you know, selling you cigarettes, which was totally illegal. But um, that was me, you know, cleaning shelves, cleaning bathrooms. So I knew the value of hard work, um, but I didn't want to work for him anymore. I wanted to experience something outside of that. And I asked him, is anyone hiring? And he said, uh, in fact, I do. Uh, I know a guy who owns a pastry factory in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Let me hit him up. And I said, okay. Um, I'll do that. And I went there and that is where my culinary career began. Kitchen Porter style. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was my first gig in the in the kind of entertainment, if you want to call it that, and hospitality industry. Um yeah, kitchen porter KP, washing dishes. It's hard graph that is. That really teaches you the the camaraderie that exists in the kitchen. I think like you go to war with each other, you slave away. Um it can be a brutal environment as well. Um, how did you find it? Uh, it was at that time, I think I needed physical and mental stimulation. Um, and that was the perfect job. And, you know, Matt, uh, you working as a kitchen porter, you know how brutal that work can be, but it can also be therapeutic in many ways, in many ways. Right. I, I think you would yeah. agree that there's just something about like doing this intensive work that requires every single part of your being. Um, and before you know it, the day's over. And it's almost like this euphoria that comes over you. Yeah, and you you know, you get abused and spoken to like a piece of shit by uh, you know, everybody else around you in the kitchen because you're the lowest in the pecking order. But what also happens is at the end of that shift, if you keep up and you deliver and you get the job done, then you know, they buy you a beer, even if you're like 13, 14, there's that sense of reward there. And um it can really like ignite in you not just a work ethic but a sense of like belonging right like oh i want to please this person now i want to work hard to please the head chef to to be accepted to feel part of the team and there's a real community spirit that exists in kitchens like few other places i think on this earth yes you actually hit the nail on the head and that's exactly what drew me to kitchen culture was that like reward system 
it's almost like you get beaten so bad that when you get rewarded, you 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 enjoy it that much more, and you don't mm-hmm. really. Oh, you've been you've been fucking slapping me around this whole time, and now you're giving me a beer, and it makes the beer seem that much better, you know. When in reality, it's like, did you not forget that this motherfucker was slapping you around for the last eight hours, you know, ten hours? And it's funny, isn't it? Because that's essentially a very abusive relationship, and I think because the world's changed so much now. A lot of these kitchen practices have probably radically changed. I haven't worked in one for many years, but yeah, this was kind of like late nineties, early noughties when I was first doing it. And yeah, it was brutal, 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 physically, emotionally, mentally. Um, but as you say, you kind of go back for more. It takes a certain type of character, I think, but if you are wired that way, there's, there's an allure to that lifestyle. So that was it, right? That was the bite was the bite it was that allure it was that idea of sense of belonging um so i'm you know i'm six foot uh, at that time now i'm six foot 260 pounds i'm a big boy at that time i was like 60 pounds lighter but i've always been a big guy you know and when i walked into this factory you know the chef basically saw me it was like oh i can use this guy you know i mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> it wasn't a restaurant it was a factory you know so he uh he had employees, but they were smaller Mexican women, uh, women, wonderful. Uh, Ori and Rosa, I still think about them to this day. I've lost touch with them, unfortunately. And uh, but um, yeah, you know, he was more than glad to have this young strapping lad working for him. Yes, that was a band reference. But um, uh, <laughs> uh, bring him back if you're yeah, listening, Devin. Please, Devin. <laughs> um, so as I saying, yeah, so I was I was a young, strong guy and I, I walked in and the chef was he was not your prototypical chef of the era where you think of like this abusive guy. He totally was. And I, I thank him for it in many ways. But, uh, you know, big smiles and hey, come work with us like, yeah, I'll teach you type of thing. But at the end of the day, the work was tough. And um, I think, again, because that place gave me such a sense of purpose and I felt like I belonged somewhere and I was rewarded for all this effort that I had put in. I just, again, like you mentioned, Matt, it was the bite. That was what hooked me into the industry. And it was also um, the prospect of learning, you know, for the first time I really wanted to learn and I, I wanted to learn under a master, so to speak, because up to that point, I didn't have a, a master. Uh, I always worked under my dad, but that's like, you know, that's working for your parent. It's not the same. Um, and when I was playing guitar, I didn't have that guitar teacher I went to all the time. When I had my band in China, I didn't have that guy to go to for advice. Everything was just I, I was learning everything on my own. But now for the first time, there's someone that's like, I will teach you like I will give you the tools that you need to be successful. That prospect was fascinating to me. And I just jumped at the opportunity. So before I knew it, I was working there. Maybe. Uh, I would start at like 6 a.m. and leave at like 8 or 9 p.m., you know, wow. anywhere from five to seven days a week, just depended on the day. And I was young at that time. It was fine. Like I, I could totally handle it. Uh, at that time, I was working out a lot more, a lot more fit than I was. So I treated work like, you know, like my uh, like <laughs> like a, some kind of sick version of CrossFit, you know, I'd, 
be moving all these boxes, driving around town, you know, carrying a, 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 a dolly, you know, with all these boxes of pastry items, unloading the truck, loading the truck, then going back to the pastry factory and making pastries and then doing like two hours of dishes of several hundreds, hundreds of pounds of uh, aluminum sheet pans all washed by hand. We didn't even have a, a dishwashing machine. You know, I was just a fucking animal. And I enjoyed it. It was just, it was so stimulating. And I felt like I had direction in my life. It's like, oh, if I can wash these dishes in an hour and a half today, as opposed to yesterday, it was an hour and 40 minutes. I was just always in competition with myself. And the chef was more than glad to have someone like that, you know, like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll just leave you to your own devices. And it was, it was really good for me, I will say. I mean, very bad for me in, in many ways, too. But uh, if I were to go back, I wouldn't change a single thing. But it was definitely feeding into my crazy, for sure. Yeah, you both have been uh, saying a lot of things that I would have said about the the kitchen, and uh, I'd even say the the bar industry as well, like working behind a bar, that camaraderie, the abuse. Still, very fond memories of of mine from those days. Uh, but I wanted to to jump in here and ask you um, because I I totally feel there is a direct line, at least for me between music and food uh, and i feel like you know rehearsals like prep you know there's a certain performance that goes on and i'm sure it's one thing working in a factory but um you can speak on actually getting out into the restaurant but seeing people react to what you do having that sense of camaraderie and then like when people try your food when you became a chef like that's something that i've always loved because i've been cooking since i was about eight years old and I love having a house full of people and I'm in the kitchen and we're talking and that environment that you have when you're cooking and, and people are around you and the smells in the air and then the presentation of the food. It's funny where for me, like sometimes just the preparation is everything. And when it comes time to eating, everyone's eating and I'm like, I don't, I'm not even that hungry. I just enjoyed the process so much of like preparing it and serving it. And I really do feel it. It's a parallel to performance and music. What do you think? Obviously, it's two things you love very much, so I'm sure you could draw those parallels as well. One million percent times another million. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something about entertaining, uh, gathering. The, it, it's a full sensory experience, both music and uh, both music and maybe not the taste part for the music. Maybe, maybe you can. Depends oh, what you, sweat, man. Depends sweat how sweaty the person next to you is. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> but uh, aside from that, it's a full sensory experience, right? It's it, and it's also a gathering, ex uh, an experience of gathering. So for Jesse, you mentioned this part about you you've been cooking at a young age, and you brought up the family aspect at the dinner table. That is the exact reason why I love cooking so much, and it's the exact reason why I've gravitated towards the work I'm doing now, which is not so much focused around working in this gigantic kitchen with the team of 75 people and I delegate everything. No, like I want to do something where I get to um, be in front of my customer firsthand. And that's why I'm working on this sandwich shop that I'm doing now, because it's not a dining room. Everyone walks up to the counter and I get to see everyone's face. You know, maybe I'm not going to be putting together every single sandwich, but I get to have that moment with you and I get to watch you you know, the anticipation, receiving the product, and then I, you know, whether you eat it or there or not, doesn't matter, but it's just that, uh, it's that exchange. There's, there's some energy exchange that happens there. 
And it's the same thing with music and um, it's the same thing with music and food. For music and food, there's a creation period, whether it's creating a song or creating uh, creating um, a dish, right? There, there has to be a period before the presentation where you're figuring it out. And then that's where you pull from your skills and your experience. And the more experienced you are, probably the easier it gets to pull off a better product, right? The more you do something, the better you get at it. But it's that, it's, it's, it's setting that, having that vision and, and going towards it. That's one part of the journey. Then you complete the product and you're like, all right, you know, you, you wrote an album or you wrote a single, or I put together this dish and now I'm ready to put it on the menu or put it out to the public. And then seeing the people's reaction when they get it, when they taste it, or when they hear the song, or when there's a lyric, Jesse, that you write that someone connects to and gets it fucking tattooed on their body or like sings along with you on stage, right? People you've never met in your entire life. And they're, they're you know, they could basically sing for you, right? You can point the mic down at them. And it's like this, the same experience you get with food in that I present this dish and you know, you see a, a transformation happen. You see, you see them like tasting it and then they're digging around their brain for some kind of connection to it, whether it reminds them of something their grandma made or something that they had at whatever region of Asia, or it's a completely new experience for them. And you're, you're creating the memory, that wonderful food memory that they're going to refer to for the next 10 years. You're watching that happen right there. Right. Like, and I mean, I think er, at least at least one food memory for every single person on this on this planet comes from something their family made at mm. least one. right. Like one of the top three. And then when I can become part of that top three or top five, when you see people's like basically their eyes <laughs> roll up into their heads because they're just so they can't believe what they're tasting. It's it's that. Again, that's like another sensory overload experience that I think um, that is very unique to food and music, and which is probably why um, a lot of uh, a, a lot of musicians, a lot of musicians I know, love cooking and or food. And uh, I, I'd be hard pressed to find any kitchen that doesn't have a radio blasting. Yeah, fully. All loaded with emotion as well, isn't it? And you allude to that there. You know, as much as a gig and an album and a musical experience is loaded with emotion, food for those that have that passion, you know, it's all about the emotion and memories and, and, and moments. What's cool as well is like in the same way that a band will go on tour and a song will evolve, evolve over the course of that tour, dependent upon crowd reaction, dishes evolve in that same way. Like, oh, okay, that sauce hasn't quite gone over the way I would have liked. Let's maybe, you know, switch it up for this or just lower the dosage a bit or extend that out. There's so many similarities. 100%. Actually, that's, a, that's an analogy I've, I've never, or that's a bridge that I've never put together with those two things. Yeah, there's always an evolution. You put the, the dish on the menu and maybe you stumble across a better way to produce it or you find a better source of chicken for this chicken dish, whatever it is. Like, yeah, another cool thing is that it continues to evolve, right? Like, mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a band and they kind of switch it up in such a way that you don't expect. It's not on the record. And I'm the type of guy that likes to hear songs that, you know, played 
similar to the way it's heard on the record. But I just love it when they do change it up and I'm like, oh, shit, that was dope, too. You know, like that was really cool, too. Yeah, there's absolutely always an opportunity to continue to evolve it. Where do you stand on that, Jesse, um, when you're out on the road? Like, do you guys like to try and keep all the songs as they appear on the record? Or do you like to switch it up, surprise people and rewrite those tracks? I'm, I'm all for doing different stuff, but yeah, it doesn't really happen with Killswitch. Um, Killswitch is pretty much sticking to the formula. Uh, we did a little bit of that with Times of Grace and moving forward, um, you know, I'm sure we'll do that as well. It was just really nice to have those guys jam out. When we had this one song, we play live, End of Eternity. We did have like a, a minute and a half jam session where they would just jam. And I loved that. I want to do more of that. But yeah, Killswitch is pretty what you see is what you get type deal. I might blues it up and hit a few different notes, but for the most part, you're hearing what you hear on the record, which some people really like. I guess it depends on the band and the style too, you know? What about as a fan for you? You know, if you're going to go see one of your favorite artists, do you want to hear the songs as you know them or? I like a bit of both. I like a bit of both for sure, but there have been times where I've seen a band and they, they switched up a little too much and I wanted to hear like the song in this particular way, especially like a section where I can't wait for that part. And it's like, oh, it's different. So I, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of both ways. It depends. It depends. But I'm all for the artist being an artist. If that person is on stage and they're in it and they're enjoying it, that's what matters to me. Like I can sense that and feel that. So even if it's not exactly how I would have wanted it, if I can see that they're really in it and they're doing their best to sort of give you something that's an evolution of them, I love that. And I appreciate it for sure. You have to mention Bob Dylan at this juncture. Never has a man strayed further from the originals. <laughs> You're watching him live and he's about seven minutes through a song. And then you go, oh, it's blowing in the wind. He doesn't care because he doesn't care, though. <laughs> Dylan never cared what people thought of him. Almost to a flaw, but, you know, that's, that's why people love him. So I want to backtrack, Brian. I'm really curious because I actually don't even know this. So you got the bug in the pastry uh, factory. So from pastry factory to, like, working in kitchens and beating Bobby Flay and all these things that you've done like what happened there take me so the, the pastry factory gets you you're like this is this is my shit what what next what happened uh, so I started working at the pastry factory and it quickly it quickly started to manifest a lot of ugly things that uh, I hadn't dealt with um, you know, a lot of mental mental health issues that and I wouldn't uh, fully address until many years later. But it was definitely while it was very good for me, it was also bringing to light uh, a lot of issues I was having. And one of those things is I just get obsessed over things like to a detrimental point. So I got obsessed with this work. And it was because I it was like, oh, I feel like I belong here. If I do more of this, I'll belong more type of thing. I don't know what the word is for that. You know, I don't even think there's a specific condition, but I would just literally get obsessed. And uh, it was the same way with guitar, but it wasn't as severe. And um, I just started working like crazy. I also thought that I was making up for lost time because up until that point, I was, again, this rich kid. I, I Everything was handed to me. So I felt like I needed to earn my stripes. When in reality, like, you know, I'm just being my own worst enemy. There's no one went up to me and said, like, you have to make up for lost time for being a fucking spoiled rich kid. Like, no, if, if someone was raised a spoiled rich kid and they didn't know that they were a spoiled rich kid and they didn't know any better or any different, 
you know, in many ways, it's not their fault. It was just a condition of, of their surroundings and how they were brought up. But I think because the culinary industry was so humbling and, uh, you know, again, here I am, this young, uh, rich kid, uh, um, you know, in perfect health, working side by side with all these immigrants who don't even have papers and, um, uh, you know, barely, barely making it and struggling. And I'm doing this job for for my for my uh, for my own um, for my own ego, more or less. And I, I just projected onto myself wrongly that I should do more to prove myself. And there was definitely an aspect of like the kitchen machismo because I did not get certain levels of respect because I was, again, that, you know, young, healthy, rich kid. It's like, oh, he doesn't know how to he doesn't know how to he doesn't know what struggle is. You know, so it was like, bitch. I'll show you like what I can handle. And it, again, I just kept feeding into this vicious cycle. Um, but also the whole thing with growing up, <clears throat> excuse me, growing up um, as a single child, never feeling like I had a sense of belonging. You know, that whole sense of belonging was another driver of why I wanted to belong so much more. Um, never really achieving much in my life up to that point. You know, I was never good at sports. I was never good at school. I was never good at video games or anything. So here's this first time I saw like sheer force of will can get me ahead. And I, that's one superpower I knew I had is like I had this fucking stubborn, unbreakable sheer force of will. Um, and that turned into like these hundred hour weeks working three different jobs sleeping one or two hours a night, becoming totally obsessed with being the next biggest chef. And being a kid who grew up loving rock and roll music, I always wanted to be a rock star, but I left that dream behind in Beijing, China when I, when I came back to the States. But when I was working in this pastry factory was also the rise of all these Food Network shows and Top Chef and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, if I work really hard at this, I can be a, become a rock star here. I mean, it was, it, that was like, that was literally my mindset behind it in many ways. That was like another motivating factor to work even harder. It's like, oh, if I work twice the amount of hours than everyone here, more than twice, everyone's working 40 hours, I'll do not double, I'll do it two times and a half. I'll be able to catch up to that guy's um, place in no time type of deal. It's totally misguided. And again, I don't regret it because I got to see, <laughs> I got to see what I was made of, so to speak. But I was just completely destroying my personal life, my mental health. It led to a suicide attempt because um, I was so obsessed with pleasing the chef. And when I would not please the chef, it would uh, be completely detrimental. And I, I would think I completely fucked everything up. Oh, everything's terrible. And I, I, I can never recover from this. Oh, chef, how can I ever make it up to you? And, you know, he had, he had a little hand of that too, you know, in, in uh, he also played a lot of mind games. He did come from the era of the really tough old school chefs, even though when I first met him, he was kind of this happy, jolly guy, but uh, only go on later to find out that that wasn't so much the case, but it was just a vicious cycle. And my, my insane work ethic was feeding into it. But uh, I eventually left there, ended up taking a, like a 40 hour a week job and uh, uh, at a bread factory. 
And then uh, I became a like a part of the praise team at a, a church at that time. And what was crazy was I, I switched one obsession for another. So then my obsession became having the best praise band in the entire area. So I know that about you. That's interesting. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I completely broke down, had a suicide attempt, you know, found God, Christianity, um, started going to a church, uh, brought my guitar playing skills to this church, and they had a terrible praise band. I mean, you know, it's fucking horrible. But it, be, it became my mission now. Oh, I'm only working 40 hours at this bread factory, but my, the other 40 hours, I'm going to meet with every member a different day of the week in the church band and teach them how to play their instrument better mm-hmm. and then Damn. it still became a hundred hour week and then my mind broke down at the church and you know um you know things broke down there and eventually it got to the point where i i saw that um becoming being a self-taught uh cook or not a self-taught but just not tr- classically trained was preventing me from getting promotions, getting raises and stuff like that, because I work longer and harder than that guy. But like, I just don't do it the right way. Like my default is not the correct way. So um, sorry, Brian, you still have more time to go. And then that's when I decided to go to uh, the Culinary Institute in Hyde Park, right by where you live, right, Jesse, I believe? You're that's in- about an hour or so away, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, just, you know, north of New York City. And uh, I I got my education and I... Um... It's interesting that the privileged kid in the kitchen wasn't educated enough for the gig. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's quite a cruel twist of irony. They're like, you've got to send this privileged kid to college. He's not qualified enough. I, I thought he was privileged. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the uh, the other people in the kitchen, they learned by working there for the last five, six, eight, ten years, whatever it was. You know, it's they, they learned it by experience and by by just that sheer amount of time. And I was trying to accomplish I was trying to get to their level within three months. It's just not going to fucking happen. You know, um, that was something else I had to learn. But I went to the culinary, uh, the culinary Institute, got my education. I had never done so well in school in my entire life. I was basically a, you know, top 10 student of the, my graduating class that year. Because for the first time in my life, I uh, wanted to pursue a very specific skill. And um, I again, I graduated, started working in restaurants, and now up to that point, I was working in baking and pastry, and now the restaurants working working in a place with the dining room customers in the dining room, it's a completely different ball game. And I, I would say this is another part of my life where, like, my mind was, my mentality had to shift a lot, and then this is also where a lot of um, like anger issues. And a lot of emotional issues started to manifest because working at a pastry factory or a bread factory, you don't have a customer to serve that's looking for their steak in the next five minutes. Like if you deliver half an hour early, you know, you deliver bread at five, six in the morning, the staff doesn't get there till 11 p.m. So if you're an hour late, two hours late, it's totally fine. But uh, working in the restaurants, it was just such a high pressure environment you know do or die environment if you can't keep up get the fuck out and you know as i mentioned earlier 
I was this guy that always needed to keep up. I was always in competition with you, whether you knew it or not. Um, and I was, I was, uh, now I became the whipping boy again. Oh, I, I got, I thought I got my education and, you know, now I, I, I'm, I'm qualified for this job, but nope, back on the bottom of the totem pole. You know, I went again, I went into the hot kitchen. I was cooking behind the stove and, uh, my parents are very emotional creatures. Uh, they're very, uh, I, I wouldn't say bipolar, but very emotional, lots of highest of highs, lowest of lows. And when you grow up in that environment, you don't know any better. You just assume like everyone's like that, right? And also up to that point, I never had a relationship with anybody that was long enough for me to uh, to realize that about myself, so to speak, right? Like a relationship with a girl. And uh, so at this point in my life, you know, I started thinking about, oh, let me have a serious girlfriend and let me have my job and start to put my life together. And I just had serious anger issues. No, no nothing physical, but you just like the tantrums that I would throw because I was so fucking wound up at work and I had to keep my mouth shut because I'm the guy at lowest on the totem poles. Totally. I would just be fucking explosive by the time I got, you know, to, to, to see whoever I was dating at the time. And it was, it was very destructive. And, um, yeah, so that was, <laughs> again, that was a long answer, but that's basically how I got from the pastry factory into the restaurants. That was, that, that's, that was that time. Hmm. So you're working your way through the restaurants, bring me up to, to beating Bobby Flay. How did that whole thing happen? Cause that's like kind of a very notable thing for you, which I believe kind of kicked you into another high gear, I assume. Yes. Yes. Uh, so I had been working at the restaurants, uh, you know, I was a cook and, um, I was a pretty, I ended up becoming a really damn good cook, you know, uh, and eventually I, um, I wanted to take a trip to the West Coast and China. One, like I wanted to go to back to China one more time before I really settled down, like have that one last hurrah, you know, just that a couple weeks of absolute like traveling, food, partying and all that kind of stuff. So uh, on my way to China, I, I, at that point, I don't think I actually ever been to California. So I stopped in California and my dad was like, while you're in California, go check out your uncle's restaurants. He has some Taiwanese noodle restaurants. And I tried the food. My mind was fucking blown. It was like some of the best noodles I had ever had. It's something I would still, well, it's, it's already kind of on the East coast already, but it was wonderful. So, um, I got on the plane, went to China and the whole time, all I could think of, excuse me, was I want to op- bring this to the East coast. I want to bring this concept to the east coast flew back to new york and i told my dad hey i want to open up uh i want to open up this uh i want to open up a taiwanese noodle restaurant i want to take over that concept he loaned me the money i opened the restaurant it was a massive failure massive uh i fell six figures into debt <laughs> and then i uh i signed up for chopped at some point while that restaurant was in operation but they only hit me up to film after the restaurant had shut down, but they already filmed some B-roll. So that was my first introduction into the Food Network world. Um, I did Chopped. Uh, so I guess my name was kind of like in the system or something like that. I did Chopped. I lost. I was extremely pissed off because my only goal was to not be the first one Chopped. And I was the first one Chopped. I was nervous. 
Um, I started I started working at Mira where y- you and I first met Jesse. Yep. Um, that was one of the restaurants that I was overseeing. And uh, the PR people got me onto Beat Bobby Flay. So for Beat Bobby Flay, I was like, all right, it's my second opportunity. I'm being on TV. I better make it count. So I, I trained for it. I was doing like mystery baskets. And rather than timing myself for 30 minutes, I was timing myself for 20 minutes. And it was like, I could have made a Rocky montage out of it. And uh, I, I went on to, cho- uh, not Chopped, I went on to beat Bobby Flay, made it past the first round uh, where you go up against another amateur chef. I won, got to face off against Bobby, and I challenged him to his most, uh, you know, what he's known for, tacos. He's known for Tex-Mex. And I figured, you know, the well. The on this guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it definitely threw him off because it's yeah. like, why would this fucking kid like challenge me to my own wheelhouse? And my whole idea was like the Conor McGregor thing with Jose Aldo, you know, just get in his head. I felt like if I got in his head, at least that would give me one, st- you know, one leg up. And it worked. I challenged him to talk to a taco face off and I ended up beating him. And uh, it was funny. Like I left the episode completely numb. Like I was like, oh, did this really happen? I just, it, it felt surreal and it didn't really sink in until like six months later when the episode aired because I had to keep it quiet at that point. Six months later, the episode aired and business at the restaurant had increased to increased by like 300 percent. No joke. Oh, overnight. It was, and this was, this is when, you know, Food Network meant a lot more. There was no YouTube or YouTube was still in its infancy, so to speak. You know, there were no content creators like the way we have. Like people still watched a lot of cable television, syndicated television. So literally, yeah, like I said, literally overnight, the place just exploded and uh, changed my career forever. I mean, that's what led to, that's what led to me meeting the guys from Metal Injection, leading to my web series with Metal Injection called Taste of Metal, leading me to meet Jesse and Adam for the first time. And, you know, here we are now. Wow. Killer. What a journey. What a friggin' journey, dude. Yeah, and I, I, it's funny that show that we competed with you against, man. I had eaten an edible uh, that morning. <laughs> I look back on that episode, and I, you can just tell I'm just like, I'm so out of it during that whole thing. But I had so much fun, man. And that's kind of what sparked our friendship is just your demeanor and your passion for food, your passion for music and your personality. And it's definitely been a total pleasure getting to know you and becoming a friend of yours and recently interacting with you on your new show on the YouTube show and making that incredible sandwich that I'm still dreaming of. I've got to, I've got to like mimic that, man. I, I can't stop thinking about it. It's one of the best sandwiches I've ever had in my life, hands down. Seriously, you're, you're a brilliant man when it comes to that shit. So what's going on now, Brian? You've got a new show and a new sandwich restaurant. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, so over the pandemic, well, prior to the pandemic, I was sought out by uh, an investor who wanted to open up a sandwich shop in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. This was late 2019. I started the project. And then, as we all know, the world went to shit early 2020. And uh, I was stuck at home. And I was very fortunate that this particular investor, uh, you know, still gave me a source of income throughout the whole thing. But now my daughter doesn't go to, you know, she has to do virtual learning. 
Um, my wife actually still had to report to the office to work, which was kind of crazy, but she's like a civil servant. You know, she's an engineer for city projects. So here I am stuck at home. Um, and I'm just the type of guy I have to keep busy. So I was like, well, I'm here. I'm, I'm in front of a computer because I have to keep an eye on my daughter because if you, with virtual learning, if you don't have someone there basically policing the kid, especially a five-year-old kid, they're not going to pay attention to what's on that screen unless it's like a YouTube show, right? So I was like, you know what? I'm going to make the best of this time. So I started doing, uh, I started researching about Twitch and camera gear, and I always wanted to do the YouTube thing. I thought it was fascinating. And as we all know, YouTube is probably like the main source of video. I mean, this show is going to be on YouTube later, right? It's like the main source of um, a video consumption for a lot of people now. And that's exactly what I did. I just got busy, started put, putting together the promo material, started putting together a business plan, um, you know, figuring out how I'm going to make this happen with the least capital possible. So I, I recorded my first few episodes of a fast food review show on my iPhone, you know, an old iPhone. And I just downloaded the footage and used that. I used iMovie and uh, that that was it. And just over the course of 2020, uh, you know, we're, we're still in, you know, uh, well, no, we're not still in 2020. But over the course of 2020, I just was researching and researching and getting incrementally better and better. And all the meanwhile, just having to watch my daughter next to me make making sure she's paying attention. And I would film my episode on the weekends when my, my wife was home. And that, that, was, uh, that was more or less it. So now my web series is called Sandwich Sunday. A new episode comes out every Sunday. And basically it's a show where it's my mission to make awesome sandwiches inspired by the most unlikely of people. My favorite people on earth are all metalheads and metal musicians and stuff like that. So I call up all my friends, you know, all my cool friends, send them a questionnaire, have them fill it out. And based on the answers of that questionnaire, I create an original sandwich combination that's named after them. So that's been what I that's what I've been keeping busy with. Um, I also been keeping very busy with my band. Um, you know, I've been playing with these this group of guy, guys for the last two years uh, or now two and a half years. And over the course of the pandemic, I was like, you know what? I was, you know, we already had the music uh, recorded and I was just going to kind of put it out there and be that local band. But I was like, I'm stuck at home again. I could totally learn how to use Photoshop and make video promo materials. Like there's a lot I could do marketing wise in front of a computer now that I have the time. So, um, you know, I have a band called Lost Becomes. We have four singles out right now. Our latest singles called Moments um, were due to put out vinyl in October uh, and also release our next single. And uh, we're going out for a run of shows next week with the awesome Moontooth and several other shows to be announced very soon. Okay. Yeah, you have my co-sign. It's good stuff. I really like what you guys do. It's it's metal, but it's definitely got some real hardcore New York hardcore bite to it. Good stuff, man. I dig it. That song you just mentioned, didn't you um, do a music video to that that's based on the experience you just told us about of kind of, you know, having a meltdown at the, the kitchen and trying to take your own life? Yes, uh, that the music video basically depicts, you know, we got a wonderful actress. Her name's Christian Espiritu. She's uh, she was actually 
uh, working as a waitress at one of my past restaurants, but she's also a professional actress. Um, we had her depict myself at this tumultuous time of my career where I basically, you know, drove, you know, drove, wanted to kill myself. You know, I wanted to commit suicide and uh, was driving into a wall, flooring the gas. Uh, obviously, alive to tell it, <laughs> but um, for that particular song, I felt and for Mental Health Awareness Month, which is every May, we felt I felt it was very important to share that message because a lot of people, you know, quite frankly, not to toot my own horn, but a lot of people look up to me and, oh, you're successful and wow, you've done all these cool and wonderful things. Well, it didn't come without its own set of struggles. And I just wanted to um, open myself up to people, showing them that like, yeah, despite what you may see about me now and my accomplishments, just know that I'm no different than anyone else out there. And if anyone else is struggling, I hope you know that uh, there's still a lot more you can do with yourself if you're just willing to go on another day, another hour, another minute. Yeah, keep going, isn't it? And, and and now you are in a place of success. I use that term loosely because, you know, it means different things. But now you're in a good spot in life. Are you in a good spot in yourself, in your mental health now today? Yes, yes. So, you know, as I was, I kind of veered off several times um, as I was telling my story, but I thought it was important to mention those things because now I do feel like, you know, I'm at the best time of my life. Uh, mental health wise. And it came through a lot of um, humbling, a lot of support. You know, I have a wonderful wife uh, who, who's supported me through all this time, but also took a lot of my bullshit, a lot of my anger issues, um, you know, and worked, worked with me through it all. But um, yeah, today is definitely the healthiest I've been. And I, I think it's because number one, I sought professional help. So yes, I did see a therapist for many years. I don't now, um, but I did for many years. I tell my story consistently. And I, I also ask questions. I mean, you know, Jesse and I have had a few conversations in the past when we were first getting to know each other, going way deeper than I ever expected. But knowing that he goes through mental health struggles, you know, someone that, you know, someone I looked up, you know, well, I still look up to you, Jesse, but, you know, someone in a band that I love so much, having these stories to share with someone like myself, like I know for a fact, there are many cooks and chefs out there that probably went through something identical, if not worse than what I did. So I feel like it, the more you share, you know, the more you're not going to cure the person's problem by sharing, but what you are going to help them with is be like, Oh, maybe there is something I can do about this. Right. And then it's that first, like, hopefully that leads them to the first step to seek out the help that they need because mental health is such a complicated thing and it's and and treatment for every person is completely different there is no one size fits all mm. it's a matter of like that journey of finding what works best for you and it, it just it, it takes a long time to sort through so uh yeah, that's that's why for me it's so important to share those parts of the story as well. You know, um, is to let people know that uh, they're not alone. Love it, absolutely love it, dude. Um, yeah, I think that's a great period on the sentence right there. You just even just the way your voice sounded was like, oh, that's it, Ryan. Thank you for telling your story, man, and thank you for being a friend. Thank you for being a voice for mental health and. 
Thank you for cooking some damn good food. Some of the best food I've had came from your hands, for sure, between Mira and that sandwich. Yeah, man. Thank you. Appreciate that. Kind of made my day today. I appreciate you guys having me. You, you, you guys have had some incredible guests on this show, and um, I really appreciate that this is a show where you guys really go deep uh, on, on, you know, really go deeper than your prototypical um, interview shows where they're asking like, oh, what's the next record sound like or something like that? Like, I really appreciate that you guys give people an opportunity to really talk deeper about everything, you know, especially in today's episode, things like mental health. So thank you guys. That's what we do. I actually have two more questions before I let you go, Brian. Um, the first being, what advice have you got for any young upcoming chefs out there to help them steer the course and, and you know, <laughs> deal with the barrage of challenges and bullshit that's going to come their way? Because it is one of the toughest industries to not only make it in, but just to exist and get by in. So what would you say to anybody out there that's a young or indeed, you know, an old, but just kind of disheartened, perhaps any chefs out there? What pearls of wisdom could you pass on? So um, there's one thing. This is just purely my opinion. But um, sometimes I think the message of mental health uh, can sometimes be a little bit risk, uh, risk avertive. Is that the right word? Or like sometimes you have to go into the risk and the fire to come out better. Like don't be afraid to confront things and don't be afraid to struggle. Um, sometimes the moments of greatest enlightenment comes from your greatest struggles. So don't, don't avoid confrontation. Sometimes don't avoid struggle. Sometimes you have to jump into it. Um, people look at my career and it's been, you know, Oh, you've been very successful. It's it's, and I think it's been successful because I've failed a lot and I, <laughs> I learned uh, I learned what not to do at that point. So don't be afraid to jump in the fire. It's really important to struggle. And it's, you know, of course, if it's going to lead you to for a suicide attempt or, you know, something crazy like that to harm yourself, then I absolutely walk away. But people are a lot stronger than they give themselves credit for. Allow yourself to to suffer a little bit. And I think you'll be very surprised how much stronger you've come out on the other side. Hmm. Solid advice. And the final question is this, my friend. You mentioned specialty sandwiches. Would you be able to make us a Stoke the Fire s'mores sandwich? Oh, man. Wow. You know, there is so much I would love to do with the s'mores because you know what? It doesn't make sense. You put a bar of chocolate on there, it is not going to melt. You right? have to, way to get the chocolate properly melted, and a burnt marshmallow is not going to do that to the chocolate. So, yes, absolutely. <laughs> that would wow. be a joy if we could share that like around the time the episode goes up that would be so killer um and i'm definitely going to attempt to recreate whatever beautiful concoction you come up with over here but yeah i, I just thought like what kind of sandwich would fit the campfire it's got to be marshmallow related so yeah a small sandwich dude that would be a gift from heaven for us for this okay. show i already have uh ideas running through my mind so yes we can make that happen amazing dude brian it's been a pleasure getting to know you man thank you so much for having me guys appreciate it appreciate your time and uh yeah